0: I think I'm on, I think I'm on, I'm on. Yep, we're good. Man, it's good to see everybody. Uh, there were a couple things that were, you know, confusing or just worrisome today about how many people we would see. Like, number one, it's Labor Day. I always forget about those Monday holidays. Um, never know who's going to be where. But then also, like, if you are back and you've been a guest over the past month, man, we're incredibly grateful that you've come back. Because the past month of teaching, like in this section of Mark, like we've talked about Hey, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off, cut your foot off if you got sin. Let's take care of that. Uh, we hit divorce. We did that, and that one didn't get recorded. If for some reason you want the notes on that, we've got those available. Um, that was probably the first time, like, pastorally, that, you know, a whole message on divorce, but that's what was there in Scripture. Um, and then we had some stuff about children that maybe some people that love their children or not, like, you're like, no, my child is incredibly precious. We're like, well, they are, but... but anyway. That was great. Andrew, thanks for covering that. And then today, man, the hits keep coming. And so we are grateful that you're here. Uh, We are still in our series in Mark, and we're just teaching it as it comes. And so we're super excited to do that, and we're grateful that you guys are here. Um, A couple things that you'll hear about towards the end of service when we do announcements, I want to hit those now so you'll hear them twice. Um, By the time we're tired of saying them is about the time that people start hearing them. Um, so, uh, baptism is next Sunday. Uh, we love baptism. It is a man. It's more than a symbol. It's more than just, you know, purely symbolic. It's also a great act of faith to do something that really, to be honest, human-wise, it has really very little relevance to us if we're just thinking in human terms. But spiritually, Jesus said, "Do this." I did it. So if you love me, you know me. You've committed your life to me do this thing that you wouldn't do any other time in your life. And so we're going to celebrate that next week. Uh, if you have questions and you have never been baptized after choosing to follow Jesus, being called by him, and would like to do that, man, we will dunk you and we will hold you down as long as you want. Um, and, uh, man, we have, we have a, a portable hot tub that we ordered just for baptisms from here on out. No more borrowing baptisms. And, uh, you know, we've got a guy that probably could have played tackle for Oklahoma that we're baptizing next Sunday. And so we need to get a big old pool. And so we're going to do it. And we've got some munchkins uh, that are declaring their faith in Jesus too, so be here for that. We'll we'll come here, we'll grab coffee, and then we'll go right outside and do that, and then we'll come back in for worship. Uh, So we're excited about that. And then also, during this week, if you get emails or if you follow us on social media, we're going to post our community groups, where they're going to meet, who's going to be leading them, what time they're going to do it. We have done a lot of restructuring and things like that to make sure that we can cover as many people as possible in community groups. And uh, just to let you know, some of those are going to launch Pregnant. And uh, they're going to need to give birth very soon, but we're working that out too. And so make sure you keep an eye out for that, and uh, we would love to have you there. So let's get rolling. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And we, uh, I'm going to pray and try to calm my heart rate down. If I pulled up my exercise app right now, I guarantee it would tell me it's too high. But, you know, that's just who I am, you know. That's the way we roll. Let's pray, and uh, we'll jump in. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that you allow us to read it, you allow us to to know it, you allow it to seep into us through exposure and through your spirit's interaction, and God, it works its way out in the ways that we express our love for you, the way we express our love for others, Um, and God, the way we just fight. Mm. Thank you for being worthy of our effort, uh, worthy of our lives, worthy of our devotion. Uh, We love you. We love you. It's in your son's name, we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. It's already happening. Uh, so, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. We're going to go ahead and read through the text, give a little bit of background. Andrew did a great job setting this up last week uh, because these two texts are very much connected, not just because they're side by side, but because they're idea for idea. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but let's go ahead and start in verse 17. Sorry that that screen shakes. That's not your eyes. Um, you know, I've looked at it before and thought I was going crazy. It's not. It's the AC blowing on that. But. If you need to just pan your head left, you can, if that gives you problems, but either you know, we're gonna be okay. Verse 17. And it says, As he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, "'Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth.' And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, "'You like one thing, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me.'" I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. "'Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions.'" Starting four weeks ago, we we talked about sin and we let Jesus, you know, kind of teach us through this idea using hyperbole of if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye, gouge it out. Your foot, take it off too. Talked about sin. And then we looked at divorce. And this week, if we read this scripture and we look at this text without digging in a little bit, uh, maybe we will think, man, they've talked hard about sin. They've talked hard about divorce and now they're telling me we can't have money. So not what we're saying, okay? We want to do the text well and look at it well, talk through what it's really saying, what it's not saying. But also, here's the important thing. We want to be honest about who we are, where we are, and what we love. That's a big deal for today. So, starting in verse 17, it says and he was setting out on his journey. Jesus was ultimately marching to the cross at this point. He had been doing it since birth, but literally now, like he is on his way uh, to be tried, to be crucified, to die for my sin, to die for your sin, to die, to die who for all who will believe. And so, that is where he is going. And on his way, uh, a man, who we know nothing about at this point, just comes up and he kneels down and he says, good teacher or good rabbi, good rabbi. And he asked he the million dollar question. He asks the million dollar question that very often is the very question that drives people to go into a house of worship. Same question. And, you know, he just very interestingly, he just says, Oh, what must I do to inherit? eternal life using a very jewish idea or a very old testament idea of inheriting the blessings of god almost like the promised land because that's the way god spoke to abraham he was like look i'm going to give you a place it's going to be yours it's going to be an inheritance from your father which is me i'm giving it to you it's an inheritance this man who is quite jewish comes up to jesus says hey good teacher good rabbi what do i need to do not a bad question Right? Not a bad question. This is, I mean, probably for a lot of us, realistically, if we track back the trajectory of our, our life with Jesus, we may have started with a very similar question. You know, it, it, it may have sounded slightly different. We may not have said inherit. You know, maybe we were, uh, maybe we were children, and we heard something, and we were like, man, I, I, want, I want eternal life. I don't want to die. I want to live with God in a beautiful place made of gold and, and sparkly things. Like, I, I want that. What do I need to do? And so, this guy, we can't fault him based on his question. A lot of people will attack his question. They're like, oh, well, he's trying to earn it. Well, Jewish ideology at this time was a very much earn it mentality. And so we can't fault him on that. Jesus was coming to flip everything over, and he was doing it bit by bit, one person at a time, one law at a time, one system at a time, one structure at a time. He was flipping it over to let us know that inheritance was not based on what we do, but what, we, you know, what we're given, what we're graced. But at this point, it was an honest question. He just said, good teacher, good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers with a kind of a weird way. He doesn't doesn't just answer. He kind of responds with a question, which he tends to do very often. And he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? He says, "Uh, no one is good except God alone. So, just weird, just odd. Why do you call me good? Well, here's a couple things. Number one, Jesus is not... Uh, dethroning himself he's not removing deity from who he is he's not stepping down and saying I'm just a man I'm not God now he's already identified himself as God with the authority that he spoke with the things that he did with the people that he touched all of those things he already established who he is but in this place he's trying to reorient this man's idea as to what good really is and is good enough because this guy's about to throw out some things his qualifications for why he thinks the next thing the next logical step for him is inheriting eternal life which is what he's after so jesus is like well why do you call me good only that's only god only god what are, what are you thinking about good and then he says you know the commandments he kind of goes over the last half of what would be the ten commandments the ones that are lateral in expression bilateral i mean the ones that we do to our neighbors to our family those kinds of things so not the shema not love the lord your god with everything you've got but more like love your neighbor You know, those types of things. He says, you know, you know these commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness or lie, do not defraud and honor your father and mother. You know, those. Just those. He's like, you know those. And he didn't name all ten. He just he just named those. And every like every good Jewish boy or girl, they would have known these quickly. I mean, they would have been to rattle them being able to rattle them off. They would have been like, hey, in their terminology, what's the second half of the Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't kill anybody. You know, we call that murder. Don't commit adultery. We know what that is. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we got that. So he asked him. He's like, you know these, right? And so verse 20, it says, And he said to him, Well, teacher, Rabbi, all of these I have kept from my youth. From the time that I was 13 until I was declared a man. All of these I've kept. I've kept. Very similar to like a Paulian idea. When Paul talks about his qualifications uh, to be used by God, he kind of said, you know, I, I kept the law. And what they meant by that is, uh, from an outward expression, he didn't kill anybody. Nope, he, he didn't commit emultery, adultery. Not emultry, I think that's a cooking technique, emulsion. Uh, we're not talking about making mayonnaise, sorry. Adultery. Um, he, he hasn't borne false, false witness. He hasn't defrauded or stolen from anybody. He's taken care of his mother and father. He's like, yeah, I've, I've done all of those. I've kept all of those. But the, the hitch in his giddy-up is, for some reason, he thinks, even though I've kept these outwardly, there's still something missing, because I'm coming to you and asking you, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit this other thing? Not just living well here, but I, I want to inherit, like, the ultimate good. I want to live forever, like, with God. I want to live with him. What, what must I do to do that? And so, from an outward appearance sake, he, he may have very well kept all of these. But, if we go back and we read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus kind of expanded on this to where he, he let us know that, like, keeping the commandments... Uh, was not just about the things that we do, but it's also about the things that we are, the things that we think, the things that we feel, the things that people never see. Jesus was t- speaking to a very, very religious group of people. He's like, yeah, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I tell you, if you have hatred for someone, you've, you've pretty much already done it. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked at another lustfully, you've already done it. Because the sin is not about what we do, but it's, it's about what resides in us very often even before it gets out. And so even though this guy had kept all of these things from his youth from the time he was 13 and confirmed as a man, you know, there were probably still heart things in him that weren't right. But either way, his question is still good. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 20, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, I think it's important that it says that he loved him. He said to him, before we get to that, I love the way Jesus deals with sinful people. Like, it gives me great hope, the way that Jesus deals with sinful people. With the exception of squeaky chairs and religious people. Uh, Jesus never dealt with squeaky chairs, but I've got one now. I don't like that. But with religious people, he flipped their tables. He confronted them very abruptly, very vocally, kind of face-to-face, kind of like, hey, uh, you're perverting the law? Uh, you are leading people to hell just like where you're going. He talked to, the, talked to them as hypocrites, people that would put on a mask and act on a stage. He was like, hey, religious people, that's what you're doing. But when he dealt with sinners, for the most part, man, he did it with such care and such compassion because he had every opportunity to bust this guy right here. Yeah, you, okay, you say that you've kept all of these. Well, have you ever hated anybody? You, you may have heard me talk about that just a couple weeks ago on the side of a mountain with great acoustics. You, you probably heard that. What about, you know, you said no adultery. How have you looked at people? What have you thought? Never lied to anybody? Really? You know, okay. All right. He had every opportunity to bust him right here, but it doesn't. It says that, comma, he loved him. And because he loved him, he redirected him. He redirected him. This is what he redirected him to, this man. It says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. A lot of people suggest that uh, because the writer of Mark, uh, because Mark put that there, uh, there must have been some type of expression So they think that maybe Jesus touched his shoulder Or maybe like, you know, one of our expressions Like the side hug Like put his arm around him like a father to son when, You know, an intense talk coming Or something like that Or maybe just, maybe just looked at him intently Because there was some observable thing That caused Mark to see this and write this And say, he looking at him Loved him And he said to him You like one thing You like one thing huh, and this is where for us a lot of times it goes off the rail, okay, because we read this and we're like, well, not me, not me, this isn't me. He said, you like one thing. He told him to do three things. First, he he said, go and sell. Go and sell all that you have. Sell all that you have. Okay, all right. Then he said, give it to the poor, And then he modifies a little bit and he says, you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says, come and follow me. Three things. Go sell, give away, follow me. Go sell, give away, follow me. What we find out about this guy is he had a lot that he could sell. He had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of money. He was a man of of great means. We're actually told in the other gospels that he was a young man, so he probably had it before other people Normally had it too. So a young, rich man. And not only just a man, but he was a ruler. He had a position of authority. So he had respect. He had money. He had stuff. He had kept a lot of the commandments. But he asked Jesus, pointing question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You've done all this. Great. You just, just one thing. One more thing. Go sell all you have. Give it to the poor. And then follow me. Very often we read this text as an indictment on riches. Okay? Now, I'm not going to say there's not some truth there. There is. There's, there's big validity there, which we're going to cover in just a second. But let's hear everything else that's there too. Jesus was able to look at this man's heart, and even after his declaration of, I want eternal life. I've done these things. I've taken care of, outwardly at least, I've taken care of my neighbor, those who I'm supposed to love, like myself. I've done that. Um, there must be something lacking in me or something that I'm missing, so I'm asking you, and he says, yeah, there's just, just that one thing. Just that one thing. And for this guy, that one thing revolved around his wealth. Revolved around his wealth. Go and sell it. Give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. This is the saddest part of this text. Verse 22. Jesus stopped. He loved him. He looked at him intently. Maybe he touched his shoulder He was speaking directly to the man's heart and his spiritual condition. And it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It says, heartbroken, he walks away, because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of stuff. So, Jesus, very much like a couple of weeks ago, where there was a controversy, a public teaching, a private teaching, very similar here, he was speaking to that man based on a question. The man walks away, and then it says, and Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, who were right around, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? These these disciples, they were looking at a guy who, to be honest had it all. Like, he had it all. Like, he had the clothes. He may have had the entourage. He had the position. He had the respect. People probably knew his name before he arrived. And he had kept the law. He was rigorous with it, it appears. Um, and, And he was coming to Jesus, and he was actually addressing him in a pretty respectful way. You know, he wasn't addressing them the way a lot of Pharisees would have addressed him. He actually addressed him with character. He addressed him kneeling. He did a lot of things. Like this guy had a lot of stuff going for him at this point, like checking boxes left and right. And Jesus says, hey, uh, the rich, which this guy represents, it's going to be very hard, very hard for them to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he, he speaks hyperbolically again. And people have tried to downplay this through the years. Starting in the 5th and 6th century, there were some people who had wealth, and they wanted to downplay this passage. But he says, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's going to be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Whew! Man, that's, that's pretty personal. Now, granted, their needles, the eyes were a little bigger back then. You know, we have greater, greater practices of making sewing needles now. I mean, even with, yeah, anyway. So, but they weren't that big. Camels still be really hard. And, and even like in the 5th, 6th century, there was a religious leader. He's like, oh, oh, well, I know what Jesus was talking about. There was a gate. There was a gate, and it was called the needle. For a camel to walk through, he had to take all of his packs off so that he could fit through. So not completely unreachable. Problem is, there, there was no gate. Nobody's been able to find that gate. It was a good theory, but no gate. Jesus was just saying, look, you take a sewing needle, you try to force a camel through it, that's how hard it would be. That's how hard it would be. For someone of great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? And am I wealthy? Now those are the questions that pop in my head. Like, what does that mean? And, and am, I back, am I wealthy? Anyway, let's, let's keep moving. So, he says, Children, difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished. Then they, they said... It's almost like an inner conversation. They might not have said to him, but either way, they they said, uh, then who can be saved? And Jesus, looking at them, said, and when we read this, we should breathe a huge sigh of relief. He says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, now granted, before we even get to this statement like, Up until this point in the Gospels, like the disciples, even though they were the ones that Jesus had called, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. How we define what a disciple looks like is is the way that he called them, what we see them do. But up until this time, very often, Jesus had to be hard on the disciples. They didn't believe. They couldn't figure things out. And Jesus was like, how long? How long am I going to be with you? Like, come on, guys. You've watched, you've heard, you've listened, you've seen it, you've done it, you just don't get it. And very often, even in the midst of great places, he had to come down hard on the disciples. Why? Because he was training them, he was growing them up, he was literally discipling them to be the church after he left. But in this case, it's amazing that the disciples come out pretty good. It says, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He made a pretty true statement. And Jesus didn't correct him and say, Well, Peter, you still have a house. You still have a boat. Because he did. He didn't say that, so we need to, need to read into that in just a second. And then Jesus says this. He says, Truly I say to you, difficult English, but we'll come back. He says, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus basically said, if you've given it up for me and the sake of the gospel, I'll give you more. I'll give you more. Let me tell you what this is not, number one. This is not name it and claim it prosperity gospel garbage. I'll be, I'm not even saying that with a smile. I'm saying that quite honestly, quite sternly. This is not, this is not you follow Jesus, he'll give you all the riches you could ever possibly imagine. That doesn't hold up up to anywhere else in Scripture, okay? So it's not saying that. But he is saying, look, if you give up things for my sake, if you give up things for the sake of the gospel, you're going to be provided for. You're going to be taken care of. And whatever you give up in this age or in the age to come, I'll give you more. I'll give you more. Basically, he's like, look, this is a completely different economy than you've ever seen because I own it all. I own it all. Even what you have now that you're going to give up, oh, by the way, it's mine. It's mine. So if you give it up for my cause, I will take care of you and give you more. I'll give you more. In one way that we see this, like to be honest, like even even living like this idea that heaven's going to be so amazing, yes, it is, but we just don't know. Jesus spoke about heaven. He spoke about how good it was going to be. He spoke about new earth and how good it was going to be, but not in great detail. We don't know a whole lot, but what we do know, we can look at this text and we can see that Jesus says, look, uh, what you give up, I'll give you more. Just know that. And it's not even like motivation. He's not even saying, hey, come to me, give up everything you have just so that you'll get more. He's just telling them this as as kind of a factual statement. Like, look, just understand. I want you to know, if you leave that behind, waiting ahead of you is going to be more than you ever left behind. And it's going to be better. It's going to be better. Like, anecdotally, I think if we talk to believers, you know, around the world, not just in our Americanized little Christian bubble, we talk to believers around the world in which following Jesus has cost them everything, they will say, look around. look what i have now and most likely they're pointing to people by the way and i think it's interesting that jesus doesn't talk about livestock and all that kind of stuff and not know so much possessions here but he's he's very clear to mention mothers and fathers and children's children and daughters sons and daughters and those types of things i think for us we may not know exactly how this works out but here's our foretaste look around Look around. If you have declared Jesus as Lord and those who are sitting near you and doing life with you have declared Jesus is Lord, that's a foretaste of what's to come. He's granted us family already that are bound to him through the blood of Jesus, not by genetics. And they can never leave. The same idea of like adoption, being adopted to God the Father, like that adoption that they talk about here, there's no way to get out of that no matter what you do. It's the same with our lateral relationships. Like, because I'm adopted into the same family, you're adopted into the same family, there's no way that I can unbrother you or unsister you. It can't happen because we haven't been saved by our own merit. We haven't been saved by our own good works. We've been saved by the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. So, therefore, you're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you. A foretaste of what he's talking about, we can simply see when we just look around and look at the brothers and sisters that we've been granted. Like, I love early on in the book of Mark. When Jesus' literal family, they come and they think he's going crazy. They're like, hey, come away with us, my son. He's like, who is my father, my mother, my brother, my sister? Is it not those that are sitting around me right now? The foretaste of what we don't know but what we can understand here is God is giving us so much. A couple things in this passage. I think for a lot of us, we go ahead and we, we shut off And we're like, well, I'm not wealthy, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, let me lay that suspicion to rest really quick. Contextually, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. Wealth here wasn't so much defined as what you had, but the lack of what you needed. Hear me. Wealth wasn't nearly much as defined as what you had, but the lack of what you needed. So in other words, someone was wealthy here if they needed little they needed little and so this man the reason that he was called wealthy is because there was not hardly anything that he needed that he didn't have or could acquire like that the American circumstance let me be honest and this is not this is not to elicit guilt I just want us to be able to frame this well and think clearly on this like the American circumstance there's not a lot that we don't have that we can't get pretty quickly now granted we have destitute we have poor like, I, I think for a while, I, I could clearly declare that there was a while where Abby and I, we lived well below the poverty line. I remember that. I remember that. But at the same time, even in our place of poverty, we didn't skip a meal. We didn't miss a bill. Now, a lot of that was by the grace of God and the generosity of others. But either way, even at our poorest, living in the gateau, we, we had everything we needed. We, we missed a car every now and then because it got stolen. But either way, we got it back. Mine, and I drove it for another Ten years but even at our poorest and we were we were still we were still pretty good not not the same for everybody but for the majority of people if we are defining wealth not by what we have but by the little that we lack we're all we're all pretty good we're all pretty good i mean cvs is open 24/7 you can get store brand acetaminophen which takes care of everything apparently For like $3.26 pre-COVID, that's $4.75. But either way, I don't know those numbers. That's probably a fake. But either way, you know what I'm saying? Like, we can get that. We can scrape together the cushions in our car, the Uber that we rode in to get there and, and have enough. Like, pretty good. So just for argument's sake, let's assume that most of us are sitting in a place similar to this guy. Similar. But it does go back to what Andrew talked about last week. Like, Remember the, the kind of that key-catching idea about children is if we hope to inherit the kingdom, because that was the question that Jesus was addressing then, even before this rich young ruler came and fell at Jesus' feet, if we hope to inherit the kingdom, we need to believe like a kid. We need to have faith like a child. In other words, we need to depend on Jesus the way a kid depends on stuff in their life. Like my children, even from their young age, even in times of want, like, they knew we would take care of them. They didn't have to work for it. They just believed. They knew. Like I, like, I have a love-hate relationship with Max Lucado, right? I do, because I believe there's no way that those things really happen that he puts in his books because he has the best illustrations ever, but he swears they're true. I remember him writing one time about him and his little girl walking on a side of their neighborhood that they had never been where they were still building houses, and it was complete dark. No street lights and his daughter's holding his hand like perfect. It doesn't get any better than this. And he you know, he looks down, and he's kind of looking at his daughter, expecting her to want to run or cry or one of those things because they're in pitch black darkness, place that she's never been, and she's like three, you know, four steps to his one kind of an age. And he, he finally just gets perplexed, and he asks her, he's like, are you not scared? And she's like, no, because I'm with you, Daddy. Yeah, that doesn't happen, but either way, great picture of potential, like we have to come with faith like that, that type of child, holding your daddy's two fingers, because that's as big as your hands are, not being afraid a bit, because you're beside your dad, it doesn't matter if you're in a place you've never been, it doesn't matter if it's dark, it doesn't matter if your shoes are hurting your feet, you're okay because you're with your dad, that's the way that we come to the kingdom. You have to have faith like a child. You're with dad, you're okay. You have need, they're going to take care of it. You don't ask where it came from. You don't ask, can I get more? You just know that it's been given to you, faith like a child, believing like a child, trusting like a child. Now, I understand not every child had that, but I'm making sure that mine do the best that I can. And I guarantee the majority of your parents tried to do their very best to do the same. And those that Jesus had in his lap and that he was blessing in that moment, whose parents loved them enough to bring them to Jesus to be blessed with his hands, with his words, with his presence, probably a very similar idea, come like these. Same idea here. You know what the one thing was that this guy lacked? Because of his wealth? was dependence on someone other than himself. Whew. We have so little that we actually need, it's so easy to forget that our biggest need can only be met by Jesus. That's the reason the gospel's so hard here. Like, it is. Like, I, I know, I get it. Like, I get the pressure of a, a missionary's heart to go somewhere where the gospel's not heard. I get it. Like, I do. I've wrestled with that. I've fought that. I have. Like, I, I've heard the whole fishbowl analogy and I've heard all of that stuff. But also, I know that in this country, in this place, in this time, it is harder to communicate the gospel effectively because we don't understand need. Why? Because we don't have any. If wealth is determined not by what we have, but what we don't lack, man, we are all good, and we can't see beyond our circumstance to understand that our eternity looks very different from our immediate time and place in which we need nothing. But eternally, we have a need. We have that one thing. Because we depend on ourselves for everything, and it's hard to flip the switch to depend on someone else. Now we can see we're all there. Rich young ruler or not? So what does this mean? What do we do with it? I think I think the first thing we we need to ask a question, two questions. What is wealth and why is wealth in the kingdom at odds? What is wealth and why is the kingdom and wealth at odds? Well, number one, we we talked about wealth. Like, wealth is, man, not what we have, but what we don't need. And most of us are okay. Most of us are okay. Now, granted, I will say this. As a church family, if you do legitimately have a need, we want to help you. Like, if you are legitimately in need, and we've been able to do that over the past several years, and we're grateful to be able to do that kind of on the side without anybody knowing. Like, that's one of my greatest privileges as a pastor, for somebody to put money in one hand, for it to go out of the other to take care of somebody. Man, I'll be honest, I love that. I love that mess. And I love it when somebody comes and says, hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell it. But whoever needs it the most, can you give it to them? Okay, we'll do that. Absolutely. They won't even know who it came from. Man, I love that. I love, man, so good. So if you do have need, legitimate, please please talk to us. Family takes care of family. Anyway, so there's that. But what is wealth? Wealth is being able to take care of the things that we need to um, and not lacking much. And why are the kingdom and wealth at odds? I think, again, like, why is Jesus saying it's (laughs) so hard for someone wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Well, I think it's just that perception that I really don't have anything that I really need right now. So why would I cry out to Jesus? like why now our brothers and sisters in other places in the world they get it and the gospel's far more approachable right because they don't know where their next meal is going to come from they don't know if they could die tomorrow because whether or not they die tomorrow because they went to a worship service yesterday uh, they don't know if they have the time and the ability to walk six hours to go and hear scripture they don't know when they're going to touch a bible next and they know that doing any of those things could very well cost their life they, they understand need we don't they do And because of them, it is easier for them to impose the gospel on their life, to realize, oh, Jesus is coming to give me, like, everything that I possibly need, and not just the meal that I eat, not just the safety that I desire, because I might even lose that, but, like, my eternity. I want it to be different than my immediate context. They understand that. Very often, we don't. and Let me say this. Very often, I don't. Let me use I statements. We'll talk about those next Sunday. Like I statements. It is very easy for me to miss the fact that there is a need that I can't meet. This guy in this passage, oh, I've, I've kept all of those. I've done all those. I got them down. Thanks for asking. And the reason that wealth and the kingdom are at odds is because unless we see that we need Jesus, we will never, ever cry out we won't reach our hand up for him to grab us if if we don't know that we're drowning, right? Like I love when Peter walked on the water. I love it because as soon as he went under, even though he took his eyes off Jesus, the very first thing, he's like, help me, help me, help me, help me, you know, that kind of thing. He knew exactly where to reach. We'll never know where to reach if we don't see the fact that we have great need that we cannot meet. Not by our good works, not even by giving all of our money away, not even by doing all the things that we're supposed to do, unless we understand that it's Jesus and Jesus alone that meets the need that we can't meet we'll never call out, never cry out, we'll never ask him. Never. Never. We'll continue to do our do's and our do nots, and we'll do them with great vigor, and we'll do them greatly and publicly, We'll share our tax returns if we're asked. But until we're asked, hey, what do you need? And we can actually confess that I need Jesus. My haves will always interfere with the thing I don't have. Mm. I think that 1 Timothy passage should come up next. <sighs> Read this a couple weeks ago in, in kind of just my, my soap time in the mornings, and, and I was like, man, I've got to remember this for a few weeks down the road. But It says, for, for those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation. It is a, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Is it through this craving that some, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs? Pangs is not a word I use a whole lot, but I'll say pains there and it'll work. But either way, like even here, like a lot of times we go from this passage to this and we're like, oh, money's bad. No, 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 money's not bad. It's loving money and trusting in it more than we trust in Jesus. That's what's bad. That's what's evil. Because again, we've allowed God to say, hey, I want to be your everything. And we're like, hey, you can be everything to me where my money stops. Let's do that. Problem is, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So here's the second question, the third question we ask. Does this mean I need to sell everything? I got two answers for you. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. You're like, oh, thank you for being so clear. Well, maybe, maybe not. One of, one of a good friends of mine, he says that money is an amazing tool, but it's a terrible master. Money is an amazing tool, but a terrible master. And Matthew 6, 24 confirms that too. If we throw that up there really quick, uh, this is kind of at that, that Sermon on the Mount time. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and mammon, which would be stuff. Like, hey, money's an amazing tool, but it's a terrible master. If money is your master... Like honestly, if you are uh, going after it to direct you, to give you joy, to give you peace, if it is everything that you want in life, you may need to get rid of it. Like, don't tell me that. I'm just saying. If it is your idol, like Jesus, Jesus is pretty clear, and God's pretty clear. Scripture's pretty clear about what we do with idols. We burn those suckers down. We flip them over and we push them into the sea. Why? Because it's taking the place of God. If money and success and all of those things is your idol, then yeah, you do to it what we do to any other idol. You burn that sucker down. You say, well, mm, I don't know if I want to do that. So that's the maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not may look more like uh, repentance and confession. Of God, I've let this define me. I've let this direct me, I've let this instruct me, I've let this drive me, I don't want that anymore. You do with it what you want. And then it's beginning of that realization that all of my stuff's God's anyway. It's all his anyway. He can do with it what he wants, whatever he wants. There was a, a story I read this week about a, a guy who stood up and testified in church, older gentleman. He recounted his first paycheck. He said, I remember my first job and I worked so hard for that meager paycheck and I showed up for worship that day, and I had the paycheck. Whether this happened or not, I don't know, but it's a great illustration. He said, I had that paycheck, and he said, I felt the Lord urging me to give it all. Just put it in the plate. We don't pass a plate here. We have a box in the back, and we have digital options. But either way, he said, I felt God directing me to do that, and I did it. I signed it over. I gave the whole check. And he said, from that time, God has blessed me richly. I've never wanted anything. I've had all this. I've got everything, and, and I'm incredibly wealthy and taken care of now, and, and life is good, all because of that one check. And he said, there's a little old lady behind him. And she leaned forward and whispered. She said, do it again. He walked out upset. At some point, we have to stop and remember that everything that God's given us, he's letting us borrow. It's still his. And he says, I'm going to give you the tools so that you can be my people, so that you can be my emissaries, so that you can be my craftsmanship on display here now, in this place, so that others can be my emissaries, so that others can display my craftsmanship, so that others and so on and so forth. It's all God's anyway. So maybe you might need to get rid of it if we can't make that shift. Maybe not, if God can do a great work in you and convince you that it's a tool, it's not a master. It's a tool and not a master. I think a couple uh, things to note really quickly, like It's not saying go and give away everything you have, no matter who you are. Like, we do have to admit, like Peter, he did. He still had his boat. He still had a house. Joseph Arimathea uh, was well-respected. He he was a man of means. The women who took care of Jesus, they were women that were able to take care of Jesus because they had a lot of stuff. Jesus never said, go and give all of your stuff away to every one of them. He did say it to this man because this man loved his stuff more than he loved anything else. So if that's us and we can't get past that, then the answer is maybe maybe we should give it all away. But if God can bring us past that and transition us to understand it's a tool, not a master. It's a blessing that I get to bless other people with. It's, it's something that God's granted me and entrusted me to that I get to steward well. And maybe you don't have to give it all away. But I think let God direct, direct that in you. I think a couple questions to help us think through this. Uh, number one, when we're generous, is it first fruits or Leftovers. When we're generous, is it first fruits or is it leftovers? And I think, that, I think that answers a lot. Like I think Old Testament ideology, and Jesus never corrected it. Jesus never rebuked it. Jesus never said it wasn't right. In the Old Testament, they were clearly given an example. As soon as I bless you, bless back. Like at the very beginning. Like at the very beginning. As soon as I bless you, bless back. Now my family, like to be honest, convictionally, we're 10 percenters. And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's where God has, has brought us to. Like we we don't believe that the tithe has been contradicted, and convictionally that's where we sit. That 10% is a start for us. Now, I, I'm not telling you that's where you need to be because I think in New Testament ideology we also have some ideas that we'll talk about in just a second. That it is convictional, that it's directed by God, but that is how God's directed me and my family. Like as soon as we as soon as we have an increase, 10% goes back to the local church. That's that's us. I'm not telling you you have to do that, but I am saying, is it first fruits or is it leftovers? Is it first fruits? Is it God blesses me, so I'm going to bless back. You've been generous to me, I'm going to be generous in exchange. We see in, in Acts chapter 2, the early church, we talk about it, they were glad and generous at the same time, God blessed them, they moved it to this hand, they said, who needs it? They didn't take it and hold on to it, and then call out some. They were just like, hey, here it is, who, who needs it? Is it first fruits or is it leftovers? Leftovers, we get to the end of the month, we're like, oh, I got a little bit left over, I'll, I'll give it here. Well, I think a lot of times if we do that, the money's going to run out or we're going to find something else, that kind of thing. So I think, I think and I feel, and, and I'm sure if you would ever like to sit down with Abram and Heather, Abram and Heather are our local kind of financial people. They've, they've run the Financial Peace University for us in the past. We would love to do that again. But just to think about money and to understand that money doesn't rule us, we actually should direct where money goes based on the leading of the Holy Spirit and God and Scripture and all of that stuff in our life. Like if you'd ever like to sit down with them and talk about that, man, they would love to. I know they would. I bet they would even buy you a cup of coffee at Spill the Beans, their coffee and ice cream shop. But anyway, I'll pay for that if you need me to. Um, so, But they would love to talk to you about that. And it would, they would talk to you about first fruits versus leftovers. I think if we want first fruits instead of leftovers, sometimes we actually need to plan and budget for generosity. You're like, man, that takes the romance out of it. Nope, it doesn't. It's okay to plan and budget for generosity. Like, I think we need to do that. And then I think the second question that we ask about this is, do I give to appease or am I pleased to give? Mm. Man, do I give to appease or am I pleased to give? Which is it? Because if we give to appease then we're very religious people. We're like, I want God to bless me so I'm gonna bless him back. Problem is that's not his economy. Not his economy. The first Corinthians passage that I referenced just a second ago, first Corinthians 9 verses 6 through 10, it says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? Uh, what soldier has to pay? I think that's the wrong passage. Did I give you the wrong passage? What's that? What? Uh, let's see. Give me a little more. Nope. Yeah. What farmer plants a vineyard doesn't have the right to eat some of his fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of his milk? Keep going. Uh, nope. That is the wrong passage. Sorry. Let me see. Give me a second. Yep. Yeah, I think I wrote it down in one place and I skipped it in the other. My bad. Yeah, it's Second Corinthians. <laughs> the point is this. So great that that's the way that passage starts. Sweating's not a big deal. Uh, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is is written in verse 9, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So basically, like he's saying, look, under conviction and under cheer, that's how we give. Regularly, sacrificially, cheerfully. Regularly, sacrificially, cheerfully. Regularly, sacrificially, cheerfully. Not under compulsion or religious obligation. Do we give to appease or are we pleased to give? Like, I remember early on um, during those super poor years, like Abby and I, like we, we desired to be generous, but to be honest, we could only be moderately generous at best. Like, is it, it just wasn't there. Like, it wasn't there. And, and I remember there was a, a guy that I worked with, and I've shared this story a time or 20, um, but I, I never talked to him about the fact that we were eating a lot of pork and beans. I never talked about uh, the sheer volume of Tunes of Canna, tune, uh, cans of tuna that we went through, Tunes of Canna, cans of tuna that we went through. I never had those conversations, but one day he came up to me in the gym, and he's like, hey, um, I know you're in Bible college, and I know you're, you're going into the ministry, and um, my wife and I, we feel convicted. We want to we support you guys for a while. And I was like, nah, man Uh uh-uh, I'm good. I'm great. We don't need anything. Pride was very loud in this young one. And I was like, I am fine. And I remember just kind of driving away and letting that seek. And I remember even praying probably the day before, God, would you please provide for me and my wife? Please help us. Help us be able to make rent. Help us be able to pay our bills. Help us to be able to not worry about every single penny every single month and the lack thereof. And this dude walks up to me unprompted unprompted that I saw maybe once a week. He's like, my wife and I would like to support you. And I was like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Liar! Liar! humping. Anyway, sorry. Prince's Bride. It played in the park last week. We didn't get to see it. Um, And then I had to go back to him and say, hey, let me be honest with you. My pride was speaking louder than honesty the other day, and I'm sorry. If you would like to do that, we're we're not going to muzzle the ox. (laughs) I mean, just, okay. And they supported us for a couple years. And to be honest, There would have been no way for us to make it through the college years if Rob and his wife had not done that. Crazy. Crazy. And I remember thinking, and I I remember having a conversation with him, and this is the point, like the conversation with him after I'm like, man, um, my wife and I long to be generous the way you're generous. We want it so badly. And he just gave great words of wisdom. He's like, that day will come. That day will come. You be generous with what you have, and one day you'll be able to be generous with more crazy. Very much like the tail end of this passage. He said, any of you that have left all of these things, your family, your riches, your places, understand, I'm going to take care of you. And my God, you have taken care of us. He has. Every single turn, an unexpected, beautiful In bountiful ways. Not name it, claim it, prosperity gospel, but provision of God taking care of me and my family. Even if anecdotal evidence is all we need, for me, Scripture plus that's enough. And then to understand this last thing. Oh man, every single one of us at some point lacked that one thing. Like, whatever that X is, whatever that thing is, maybe it is that you love your ability to provide for yourself so much that you don't feel like there's a great need to depend on God for anything. That was this guy's thing, but maybe your thing's different. The common ground is, like, he says go, he says do X, whatever it may be, for this guy, it was sell all your stuff for you. It may be something completely different, but it could be sell all your stuff or it could be repent and confess of trusting in that more than me. It could be take care of this sin because it's ruling over your life. It could be the way that you're doing X or Y or Z, whatever it may be that's in opposition to God's plan. Go do that. Give regardless. That's a universal. And then the bigger universal, what must we do, what must we do to inherit eternal life? Hey, you go, you do this, you give, and then you follow me. There's his answer. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Hey, go take care of this so you can depend on me fully. Give, be generous with whatever it is, and follow me. That's eternal life. Right there. And in order for that to happen, we, we have to leave this mess behind. Choose Jesus instead. This is sin. It's convoluted. It's not the stuff we want. It's the stuff that, you know, declares our worth, declares our value, the stuff that we depend on. Jesus says, I just want you to depend on me. And when you depend on me, you're going to be generous, and you're going to follow. Do that. Eternal life. The kingdom. At some point we're all gonna have to yes have to and I know we don't like that idea but at some point if we're followers of Jesus we're gonna have to start thinking about the kingdom that we live in instead of the kingdom that we came from and the kingdom that we live in is God's in which he owns it all he divides rightly all he gives to all so that we can give back to all it's his it's not ours At some point, we have to start living, acting, thinking, loving, and breathing like people who live in that kingdom. And it looks entirely different than the kingdom we came from. Entirely different. The goals are different. The the metrics for success are different. The beauty is different. The riches are different. And we're different. That's the kingdom God's calling us to. Mm. And I'll be honest, I can't wait to see it come to full beautiful, unhindered fruition. Like, I'm excited about that. The older I get, the more excited I am. I can't wait for it, but I have to. And in the meantime, I adopt a kingdom mindset here, now, in this place, in this time, in this space. Let's see if we can do that together and see what happens. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you so much for Jesus even though in the past four weeks he's brought some hammers. God, we thank you that they're there just in the same way that they were there for this rich young ruler because he loved him and he loves us and he wants us to know what his kingdom that is coming looks like. God, for those of us who struggle with how to be open-handed with our wealth, God, I pray you would convict us, but more than just convict us, I pray you would change us. I pray that you would change us to be people who are generous, who are people who give like we live in your kingdom and not ours, uh, who are people that understand that we're not trusting in our bank account to have eternal life. We're trusting in you and you alone. Grow our dependence like that of a child walking through a scary neighborhood that's okay because their dad's there. Thank you, God, for speaking. Thank you for loving us. Uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I did.